Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Happy Friday, 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 um, in a developing storyline, all right, so a, a growing number of employers across the country are now asking openly about the vaccination status of employees. Uh, Bill English uh, from BibleandBusiness.com sent me a couple of articles yesterday and said, you know, I think this is just the tipping point, tip of the iceberg and then the tipping point. This is something that uh, everybody should begin anticipating. And so I thought uh, talking about it a little bit this morning might be helpful and direct you to some resources related to it. Uh, You will remember that a couple of days ago, President Biden, in what we kind of thought at the time was an off-the-cuff comment about, you know, going door-to-door, knocking on doors across the country, much like, you know, census workers, and uh, giving people updated information from the government about the need to be vaccinated, the safety of vaccinations, where they could get vaccinated on. Um, and so that has provoked a number of conversations. Well, the, uh, the, the latest person in the Biden administration to kind of double down on this, uh, this question about whether or not the government is going to go door to door, HHS Secretary uh, Becerra, about whom we talked a lot before he was confirmed, um, said yesterday, it's absolutely the government's business to know the vaccination status of Americans. The full quote, um, which you can find uh, all over the place today, um, says the federal government has spent trillions of dollars to keep Americans alive during the pandemic. So it's absolutely the government's business. It's taxpayers' business if we have to keep trying to spend money to keep people from contracting COVID and helping reopen the economy. He went on to say, it's our business to make sure Americans can prosper, freely associate, and knocking on the door has never been against the law. You don't have to answer, but we hope you do so we can help dispel some of those rumors that you've heard and hopefully get you vaccinated. So um, it probably wasn't an off-the-cuff comment uh, that looks like there is some traction to this idea that the government may, in fact, go door-to-door and uh, seek to talk with unvaccinated Americans about getting vaccinated. I found uh, a a post on the HIPAAjournal.com website very helpful because there are people who will say, hey, that's a HIPAA violation to even ask about my uh, vaccination status. It, it's actually not a HIPAA violation for someone to ask about your vaccination status. It's also not illegal for your employer to require you to be vaccinated, particularly if you are a public-facing employee of any kind. And then there are people who say, well, yeah, but there's religious exemptions and there's medical reasons. Um, do some research to discover whether or not it's actually a part of your religious belief system, sincerely held religious beliefs, to not be vaccinated. Because if you've been vaccinated for anything, then coming up with a quote-unquote religious reason to not be vaccinated in this case um, might be problematic and a bit of a challenge. You may actually um, find it easier to acknowledge a medical reason 
And so you might want to research those as well. If you are a person who has decided not to get vaccinated and you're looking for um, a legally legitimate um, reason not to do so, just in terms of then being allowed to continue to function in spaces and places that um, are being closed off to those who are not vaccinated, not fully vaccinated, or the ongoing requirement to wear a mask, which is the sort of way of not being vaccinated and getting around the restrictions and regulations that uh, folks are implementing in certain places. All right. uh, Matt Hawkins joins us next, former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, He is a public theologian. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. We're going to talk about abortions in Minnesota. Guess what? Dropped to the lowest level since 1974. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. You can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. You can find him online, MatthewTHawkins.com. Matt, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. I'm great. All right, so I am reading on the WorldPopulationReview.com website abortion rates uh, across the country here in the United States of America and, you know, leading the list in terms of the number of abortions yeah. per thousand women ages 15 to 44 across the United States, highest in the District of Columbia. Um, But we also have some states coming in with their lowest abortion rates like ever. South Dakota has the second lowest abortion rate, 3.5 in in South Dakota. So this is only 550 abortions, um, 4% of total pregnancies in that uh, in that state, and then this incredible number um, out of uh, out of Minnesota dropping to the lowest level since 1974 in that state. What is going on? Well, I'm going to be skeptical <laughs> about oh, what's yeah. going on, Carmen. <laughs> oh, rats! So, I thought um, you were going to be the, like we were going to celebrate this joyful. Okay, go ahead, yeah. skeptic. Go. So, go well, I think it's a mix. I, I'm certainly going to celebrate with you. Um, the the recognition that uh, particularly uh, just to take Minnesota for example that abortions are are decreasing overall we we send we tend to see that trend line and certainly when you have a marker like 1974 when uh, abortion on demand was first legalized in the country and you're and uh, they had peaked um, in 1980 at 19,000 a year mm. um, you know that's that's good good news right uh, on the at the same time. You know, that's 40 years to get down, down, down to, you know, cut that number in half. Right. Um, So it was like 19,000 in 1980. And now we're looking at 9,000. And so I'm cutting that. It took 40 years in just one state to uh, to cut that cut that uh, abortion rate down to, you know, I mean, 1980, I I was three years old in 1980. (laughs) So like that was a long time ago. so I'm, I want to celebrate forward progress and, and a decrease in abortions anywhere. I'm a little skeptical that these numbers coming out of Minnesota are as positive as uh, as we want them to be. Um, number one, last year was the pandemic, right? And so a lot of elective procedures across the U.S. Uh, in the medical community decreased last year. And so to have an 8% decrease in Minnesota, you know, just looking at the abortion how does that, industry how does, as like you're saying, like, how does that line up with every other elective 
uh, thing yeah, that didn't I, happen last year in Minnesota. I, yeah, yeah, that makes and sense. And I think, I think, yeah, and I and and based on that metric, um, now the numbers are all over the place depending upon the medical specialty. Um, but I'm looking at numbers that uh, elective elective surgeries, depending upon the specialty, dropped in 2020 anywhere from 30 to 50 percent, um, depending upon the specialty mm-hmm. and where you know where in the country where the state regulations were. Um, and so for abortion in Minnesota, take just an 8% hit, you know, I'm very thrilled that there's a decrease in abortions, but given the context, the big picture context of the pandemic, I'm not entirely sure it's as good a news as we'd really like it to be. Um, what's a little more interesting were some of the numbers that come out of the Minnesota, uh, health department, um, about why, uh, people get abortions. And so according to, again, this is state specific to Minnesota. Um, we're not picking on Minnesota, just have, they happen to have a headline. Um, rape or incest was given as a reason for less than 1% of abortions. That's consistent with what we tend to see um, for those reasons for abortions. 57%, this is the majority, 57% indicated, quote, does not want children at this time, coupled with an 18% indication for economic reasons. So Carmen, we have a 75, 75% of abortions in Minnesota um, indicating that they're for reasons that they just don't want a child at this time or um, are citing economic reasons. And so the focusing in on why um, women choose to get abortions um, is a big part of the pro-life strategy um, and trying to reconcile that both in law and both in care. So that's my quick read on the situation in uh, in Minnesota. Um, I had a listener who asked a question: What about those um, chemical abortions you guys have talked about? You know, where people mm-hmm. could get pills through the mail. That's probably totally unaccounted for in most of this. Yeah, that's 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 hard to get a read on those numbers. Yeah. Is those uh, is like you said, the chemical abortions um, and abortions by the pill. Um, mm-hmm. That's that uh, is an additional reason for me to be super skeptical, or, or at least not be too uh, thrilled with the numbers. And Planned Parenthood specifically, their abortions actually increased in 2020 by 16 percent. Um, so mm-hmm. as a, as a matter of market share and as a you know. Just a cold look as a you know any kind of competitor, um, you know don't don't weep any tears for Planned Parenthood. They're doing just fine, sadly. Yeah. All right, uh, Matt Hawkins and I are going to pick up a different topic when we return. Uh, we're going to talk about religion at the Supreme Court. What happened this year, and what what can we expect in the year to come? That's up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation this morning with Matthew Hawkins. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. Um, hey, Matt, let's talk about religion at the Supreme Court. Give us some uh, yeah. top-line conversation here. What happened this year? What do you think we can expect next year? Yeah, well, uh, naturally, this all con- falls in the context of the court having its basically its first term uh, with a, a very new-looking Supreme Court um, uh, following the President Trump's appointments. Uh, and so you theoretically have uh, uh, 
you know, a six to three majority um, favoring quote unquote conservatives uh, or conservative views of the Constitution and and uh, and the judicial branch. Um, court watchers will tell you it's been an interesting year. Uh, it, things are not necessarily falling along six to three lines. Um, in fact, some people theoretically uh, have, have put out there instead of a six three court, you kind of have a three 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 court, which means you have three uh, progressives on the court, three conservatives uh, who want to look at mainly want to look at the decision in front of them and then you have three uh, three kind of not mo- moderates kind of an oversimplified word but uh, people who are kind of mindful of the court's reputation and uh, as an institution and want to make really narrow decisions and kind of take cultural moments into account if that makes sense um, some people are skeptical about that read but that's kind of the chatter among among Supreme Court folks um, religion experience a pretty good year uh, as far as you know religious freedom arguments um, I'm looking at a list of just four cases um, according to um, Kelsey Dallas, Dallas uh, writing for the Desiree and uh, you know we we had there are four cases that she cited uh, on religious freedom related issues or uh, religious identity related issues and you're looking at a docket of of unanimous decisions you have an eight to zero uh, win um, you have an eight to one win. You have uh, you have a, a unanimous win in Fulton versus Philadelphia. Fulton versus Philadelphia was the case of the faith-based foster care agency, Catholic Social Services, and uh, who um, uh, were being sued or um, were in conflict with the state of Philadelphia for not wanting to provide. Um, faith-based foster care services uh, and adoption services to uh, same-sex couples. Um, we don't. Add, your listeners have probably heard you, all, you discuss that particular case, but that's a win, unanimous, uh, mm-hmm. nine-to-zero decision for Catholic social services, which I don't think anybody really saw coming. Um, but that's uh, kind of the style, I think, of um, – of, Ju- of Justice Roberts and, and the fact that or the trend that he tends to like uh, to get extra majorities, like large majorities of decisions on very narrow rulings, right? Instead of um, instead of kind of partisan decisions that are more sweeping. Um, that's kind of a fine balance that you watch for from the court. And so um, it, religious stuff, uh, as far as religious freedom and religious identity experience, yet another good year. Um, and that's probably going to put our count roughly at, I think, uh, I'm a little foggy on the details, but about 16 to 17, uh, win streak at the Supreme court, as far as religious freedom and, and religious thing, uh, conscience. So, uh, is that your read on, on the issue? Do you have a different read on the past year? Yeah. I think that the failure of the court to take up the Baron L. Stutzman, um, case, sure. which we talked about a little sure. bit yesterday is, um, you know, potentially, a, a bad sign, at least to people across the country who are wondering how um, state by state their their religious freedom might be, um, I don't know, in jeopardy um, yeah. based on the anti-discrimination laws being put into place in certain cities and states across the country. And so yeah. I think that that conversation is a wide open one and People are feeling a little exposed after the Supreme Court's, you know, yeah. decision to not take up that case. But I think overall you've uh, you've you've analyzed it quite well, and uh, I appreciate that. Hey, I want to talk yeah. about this situation um, with the Uyghurs. Um, I know that the U.S. Secretary of State Blinken 
um, has met with former Uyghur detainees. I know that that he has said some things in relationship to that. I also had this headline that Hilton, the hotel chain, is going to build yeah. a hotel on the site of a demolished Uyghur mosque. And that seems like just horrific to me. Yeah. Yeah. So one one piece, one thread of consistency we have between the Trump administration and, uh, and the Biden administration is that they recognize that what is happening to the Uyghur population in China under the oppression of the Chinese uh, Communist Party um, is uh, is genocide. Um, now, genocide has a history dating well back into the 20th century, and uh, but part of the definition, legal legally speaking, of a of, of genocide, um, of course, g- gino meaning uh, tribe or race, and then side meaning to kill. Um, basically, the acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And it goes on to detail a number of things that you can that qualifies as genocide. Um, but let's be clear that that is what is happening in China. It looks different than most other genocides we've seen. Most other genocides uh, has just been about mass killing and getting rid of people. Um, China has uh, taken uh, strategies that I, I would call kind of a slow burn uh, genocide and that they're trying to they reeducate people. They uh, are um, decimating their birth rate. Um, with uh, uh, legal restrictions and persecution and and often uh, forced abortions, um, all of this qualifies um, as a as a genocide intended to wipe out and uh, disagree and and kind of just disappear a people group, even though physically speaking, the people would still be uh, walking around and living, which is a weird way to think about it, but I think it's I think it's a helpful way to uh, think about it. And then on top of that, you have a Hilton Hotel. Uh, Hilton apparently has not uh, commented. Um, but among the persecution and the erasure of a people, uh, the Chinese Communist government has uh, has destroyed a Uyghur mosque. And of course, Uyghurs uh, are basically, uh, it's a little oversimplified, but basically think of them as um, ethnically Chinese Muslims. Um, they demolished a mosque. And now on those grounds, uh, Hilton is about to build a hotel on top of that site. Um, yeah, I feel like now, when you go to your book, when you go to like booking.com or you go to Orbitz, right. like it's not going to disclose yeah. that. It's not going to say, hey, this beautiful new Probably hotel not. is built yeah. uh, in China on the former site of a Uyghur mosque. And the people who lived here and worshipped here are either dead or they are in Chinese internment camps being, you know, stripped of yeah. their identity and, and undergoing um, genocide. Like I, it, it, I, I'm I'm. I don't get like crazy mad about stuff right. very often, but this is horrific. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly a bad look for Hilton. And, uh, you know, we may have mentioned in the past the uh, the difference between this conflict with China um, in the big picture and our conflicts in the past with, say, the Soviet Union and, and even Germany during World War II. Um, you have an entanglement of American businesses in China at a scale that just was not happening in World War II or in our or in the Cold War with Soviet Union. It was it was un-American, you know, to do business with the Nazis. It was un-American to do uh, business with the Soviet with the Soviets. You don't have that uh, that taboo now, uh, frankly, with uh, American companies doing business in China. And it's kind of on the businesses at this point to it's a it's a lame term, but regulate themselves. 
you know, I think we need this is going to show a deficiency, I think, of ethical and moral training at the highest levels of American of corporate America uh, that they can't that they don't see that this is a problem uh, and that they ought to be uh, responsible for, uh, you know, uh, either applying pressure where possible or or bowing out to do business and declining to do business Um where there is Chinese communist rule. Um, but yeah, certainly not a good look for Hilton. Uh, let's not contribute to the erasure as Americans and American companies. Uh, let's not contribute to the erasure of a people group. Amen. Amen. Apparently at the construction site for the new hotel, there is a big sign that says, uh, please warmly celebrate the communist party's hundredth anniversary. Like, I, I, yeah, <sighs> I, yeah, anyway. Uh, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. I, my my moral outrage is uh, is pretty heightened this morning. Um, Matt Hawkins, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Um, our religious liberty concerns are not just concerns here at home, and they're not just for Christians. Um, they are concerns for everybody around the globe that every person would have um, the freedom to choose uh, their own religious beliefs and to convert uh, to Christianity should should they be led to Christ? Like, right? I mean, I am mm-hmm. I am an advocate for everyone in every place having the full freedom of their religious expression and and religious choice. And so, um, I'm I am deeply, deeply troubled um, at what's going on in China in relationship to the Uyghurs. And so, thanks for helping us unpack that a little bit this morning. Certainly, really appreciate it. All right, that's Matt Hawkins. You can find him on Twitter at mt hawk and online matthewthawkins.com. We'll be right back. Hey, wow. Thanks for all of the really robust engagement on the text line this morning. Remember, you can text me during the show your comments, follow-up questions, criticisms, whatever you want. Uh, You can text me during the show at 877-933-2484. Oh, sure. You can uh, text prayer concerns or prayers for me, encouraging words, you know, anything. Uh, appreciate the uh, back and forth this morning with those of you engaging on the text line at 877-933-2484. Uh, next up, we've got Dan DeWitt. We like to talk with him about his Weekend Worldview Reader, where this week he's got all kinds of great stuff, um, including a link to an article that I had missed um, uh, on um, on the movie The Chosen. It's actually posted at The Atlantic, um, which if you haven't already read your free articles at The Atlantic, you could read this one. Um, Christian Christian America's must-see TV show, pretty much in why secular America doesn't know anything about it. So we've been watching The Chosen and thoroughly enjoying it at our house. Um, so Dan DeWitt's Weekend Worldview Reader has got all kinds of great links, and we're going to talk about some of those up next. We'll be right back. How's the chemistry with people in your house? Are you truly connecting? And how's your relationship with your team? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. After 30 plus years of working with struggling teens and their families, I've come to realize that almost everything goes back to relationship. A discipline problem is usually a relationship problem. Conflict becomes an enemy where there's no connection between parent and child. And rules in your home that aren't backed by a strong sense of rapport will eventually yield rebellion. Hey, 
there's no better time than right now to work on connecting with your team. No matter how you've blown it in the past, it's never too late to pursue relationships at home. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Dan DeWitt. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can most easily find him at theolatte.com. That's where you're going to find this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. So great to be back with you again. All right. It's so fun to have you. You have some exciting news um, about, well, a book, The Friend who forgives. It came out this week as a board book for even younger readers. So that is super fun. Remind us about The Friend Who Forgives. Yeah. So the I was writing a book about Peter for adults a few years back. And my editor said to me, um, you know, you really ought to take this central message about Peter really messing up big time and then being forgiven in such a, a powerful, beautiful way and make that into a, a children's book as well. Um, and so I did that and that became the friend who forgives and the Lord's been really kind with that. It's, I think it's in nine languages now it's right now being translated into Hungarian. Um, so it's really been useful to people in around the world and it's been cool to watch cause I didn't, you know, set out to do that. And so they just, I didn't set out to write a children's book that is I'm thrilled that it's being, uh, being useful, but this week they turned it into, or they released a board book version of it. Um, for little kids to chew on and have their parents read it to them. <laughs> right. So we're big fans of board books at my house. Like, I, I just I just like the durability of a board book. So there you go. So thank you so um, very much for that. The Friend Who Forgives, you guys should check it out. There's a link to it at uh, the Weekend Worldview Reader right now at theolatte.com. Um, all right. So I know that this reaches back um, to a May 28th movie release. The the movie was Cruella. But I loved what you wrote about it. The The piece that you have up is Cruella, Empathy, and the Power of Backstory. Talk, talk about that. Yeah. I, you know, it's I, I'm reminded of the fact, and I often have to remind myself of this, that everybody has a reason they are the way they are, including us. Right. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when we're frustrated with people, if we'll take a step back and consider what might have led to them responding in that kind of way or having that kind of character personality trait that we find so irritating. Um, and that gives us empathy. We could, you know, that doesn't excuse anyone's behavior, but at least helps us try to understand, try to care. And this movie, Cruella, is the backstory to, for me, what's my least favorite character in all of Disney's villains, Um, even worse than like Jafar from Aladdin. Like, I just do not like Cruella. She annoys me in about every way conceivable. But after watching this, I, I kind of think, wow, she has this kind of interesting backstory that makes her who she is. And again, it doesn't excuse anything, but it allows us to be caring and to also not overlook our shared humanity. It, I just had a conversation yesterday um, with my hairdresser <clears throat> who was coloring my hair because it was time. Um, and we we weren't talking about Cruella, but we were talking about um, the backstory, you know, or the circumstances of life that may have contributed to a certain individual, you know, doing certain things that 
you know, in, in the case of that conversation, you know, are profoundly illegal and uh, resulted in that person, you know, being incarcerated. Um, but it it was an important conversation for um, for she and I to have. And I used this reference to your to your piece um, mm-hmm. in that conversation, um, just saying, you know, have you have you thought about maybe what that person's backstory is like? What um, the circumstances of that individual's life? And then again, no excuses in no way, shape or form, you know, saying that what he did of his own volitional will was okay. But at the time, did he know that it wasn't okay based on how he was raised? And I think that is a real challenge that we face um, in the culture when an increasing percentage of the population is not raised with any sort of moral um, grounding or bearing whatsoever. That, that's right. And, you know, I think that sometimes Christian leaders and for whatever reason, and I've not kept up with the topic real in depth, but there have been Christian leaders in recent history who've really targeted empathy. And I, I'm not sure what's driving that conversation. But what I want to do is just say there's a word of caution here that we do need to care about people. And I think that the fear is that it will be kind of condoning someone's behavior. And I don't Empathy doesn't have to mean that. And I had someone in a podcast interview say to me kind of, you know, uh, in their way of um, saying we shouldn't be empathetic, said, you know, if a man told us he was sad because he couldn't find his wife, we might want to cry with him. And and then we'd say, well, why are you sad that you can't find your wife? And then he says, well, I, I can't. I'm sad because I want to find her and kill her. And the person said, well, you know, we can't be empathetic with that. Well, that's just ridiculous. I mean, when we're talking about empathy, we're not talking about someone turning their brain off and and right. not having any common sense. What we're talking about is having charity. And that is a virtue Christians need to be known for. I mean, in fact, that's what Jesus said. They'll know us, that we're, know it, we're his disciples by our love for one another. And so it's important to know each other's backstory and think about how important it is to you, for people listening. You want people to understand a little bit of how you are, who you are, um, why you are the way you are. The same is true for everybody you're going to deal with today. Take a little bit of time, get to know people, and that's going to open up doors and opportunities and conversations that there are not going to be open to you if you're just intent on speaking and not listening. Yeah, get to know um, your parents and your grandparents' backstory. You may learn a lot, yeah. or your employer, or somebody who um, you know has been sitting next to you in a pew for a number of years, and you're just kind of wondering, like, how do I actually initiate a relationship with this person? You know, you could say, "Hey, I saw a movie uh, recently, um, and you know, I got this character's backstory." I'm so I'm just starting to ask people, like, "What's your backstory? Like, tell me a little bit about mm-hmm. you know where you came from um, and who your people are." Like, I it's it's fascinating um, to get people's social location and helps us better understand uh, what's going on uh, with those who are, you know, immediately around us in the world. All right, Dan DeWitt and I are going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about philosophy, but it's a philosophy conversation that you're going to really want to hear. Is philosophy like humanity's very best attempt at truth? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Dan DeWitt. We're talking about posts this week uh, at Theolatte.com in the Weekend Worldview Reader. 
Um, Dan, when we talk about philosophy, remind us, like, you know, what is philosophy? And then, you know, why it's not sufficient um, to lead us to the answers to the big questions. Yeah, philosophy, you know, usually when we hear, and I liked how you set this up, this will be a conversation you might actually enjoy about philosophy, because it always sounds so obscure and so dense and weird um, and disconnected from real life. And so philosophy literally just means the love of wisdom. And it really it goes back to um, great thinkers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, these, you know, um, titan figures who we've all heard about, but they were asking very basic questions about the world around us. What's it mean to exist? Um, what is really real? How do we know stuff? What is a human? And these are the questions that everybody really has to ask at some point in their life. So I've had the opportunity to teach an intro introduction to philosophy class um, over the years, and I just so love it because it is allowing students, and in my case, Christian students, to think about how do people try and answer these big questions. And so a, an article that I link to um, is by a British philosopher whose name's Chris Daly, and the title of the article is Philosophy's Lack of Progress. And in it, he talks about this history of philosophy that goes all the way back 2,500 years, back to the, the famous Greek philosophers I just mentioned, and he concludes We've had all these interesting conversations, but we've just not made any progress, he argues. Well, and philosophy, uh, as you observe in here, gets us looking at all the, all the questions, all the things that are wrong, but it falls short of being able to answer those questions sufficient, sufficiently because, well, Christianity actually offers the answers to the questions, the, the solution to the problem. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I like to tell students, and this isn't unique to me, I forget where I've, I've heard it before, but um, that philosophy and science as well are our search to just understand and make sense of the world and the human experience. And it, we could define it in terms of the category of bottom-up information. We're starting from our address, where we live, the world we live in, and trying to reason our way out from our experience. And what this article reminds us of is there's just so many limitations to to what we can conceivably answer with bottom-up information. And it's a reminder that if we're really going to make sense of things, we need top-down information. And you might liken it to, to use a C.S. Lewis reference, um, Lewis argued that Hamlet could never really understand his world unless Shakespeare decided to give him and write into the plot answers to these big questions. And Lewis even argued Hamlet could never know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. And that really is what Christians believe, that we can have bottom-up information, and it's helpful and useful. Philosophy has a place. It's People who study philosophy tend to do better in other disciplines as well because they become critical thinkers. But we hit these limits. Our bottom-up information can only take us so far. And Christians believe that God actually has come down in a real way, in a tangible way, so that we can know the way, the truth, and the life, and have real answers. Where philosophy can't make progress, it takes us to the end of our best efforts. God comes down and condescends to us so that we can know <clears throat> how we can have meaning, purpose, and identity. Um, okay, Dan DeWitt, here's a listener um, question that is completely unrelated to the subject matter, and yet I feel like you are the person in the world to whom I could ask this, <laughs> and you might have an idea. 
Is it a coffee question? It is a coffee question. How did you <laughs> know? All right. So um, Scott says, um, hey, there's so many threads here that I wish we could untie over coffee sometime. And and then the question is about me and my husband, but we'll ask it, including you. Do Do you and Dan and Jim have a virtual coffee shop online? Like that's a kind of a cool idea. Could you figure that out and then invite me in it? I will work on that. You know, I think with with the Zoom, there's got to be a way. That's what I'm thinking, happen. right? It yeah. has to be good. It has to be really good virtual coffee, though. It has to be really good virtual coffee. <clears throat> I will bring the really good virtual coffee. <laughs> I love that. Okay, I want to get to this. Um, God knows your address piece because I don't want people to miss this. Tons of people have been asking questions about, hey, you know, am I? Am I somehow sinning because I'm patriotic? I fly the flag. I loved going out to the fireworks on the 4th of July. I don't think apple pie is racist. Like, am I a bad Christian? So could you talk with us about this piece you have posted, God Knows Your Address, because I found it really helpful on these points. Yeah, you know, I published this earlier this week, and I had someone who's a friend who's, there's a generational gap between him and me, and so he responded quickly on social media. He's older than I am. And um, I put on Twitter, should you feel bad for celebrating the 4th of July? And this person responded, zero guilt, um, fighting against all the leftist liberal, you know, he kind of saw this possibly a concession towards liberalism to even ask the question. And I think that his, his response um, demonstrates that there is a generational divide. That I, I, what I was trying to get at is, I think there's a, a younger generation that's really sensitive to this. Um, should I feel guilty for living in a country that has peace, that has prosperity? It's not because they're trying to placate liberal ideologies, but they're really struggling with, you know, there are people around the world who don't have what we have. And so I wanted to just highlight some basic points. So I highlight things like the fact that God's sovereign over where we live, Paul says in Acts 17, God knows our times and our our, the, our locations. Um, we're called to give honor to whom honors due. So honoring the military and soldiers is right and appropriate. Paul tells us we're to pray for peace. So living in a peaceful nation is actually not a bad thing at all, right? And we're commanded to pray for others who are living and serving in difficult places. So even while we're in p- praying for peace where we live, we could pray for others we're to do everything to glor- the glory of God. And finally, I point out how Paul says in Acts 14 that even our, our feasting and celebrations are a reminder of God's provision. So I think for all of these things, it's appropriate and right that we give thanks for where we live, even as we pray for people who are in difficult places and seek to serve them. So can you eat the apple pie and watch the fireworks? Yes. But make sure we don't do it in such a way that we're ignoring Christians, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. Right. And you mentioned in there that, you know, on Sunday at worship, you sat next to a fellow believer um, who is from, uh, you know, originally from China. And mm-hmm. we recognize that we have a, a fellowship with people around the world who do not live in the kind of freedom that we enjoy. That's absolutely right. And also, too, you know, to be reminded that our deepest union, you know, me and my my brother at, in our worship service is in Christ. Um, it's mm-hmm. not even by the, our shared experience now that he's able to live in America and, and work on multiple degrees. It's not that our deepest union, union is Christ and our, our identity is not first and foremost to be an American. <clears throat> 
rather our, our identity is is in Jesus. And I think as long as we keep those things in perspective, I would want to tell someone who's you know sensitive to this question that you know go ahead and eat the apple pie, enjoy the fireworks, um, and and give thanks to God for where you are. It's God is sovereign over all things, as Charles Spurgeon said. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our heads. Um, so trust in that, but make sure that your identity is found first and foremost in Christ and not in the wonderful nation that we get to be a part of as Americans. Okay, so yesterday, Dan, um, we had uh, a gal on. Her name is Kay Wyma, W-Y-M-A. So I want you to check out her website, kaywyma.com, because yeah. she's doing this thing like, so we are today in the middle of her three-day peace challenge. So the peace project is actually this 30-day experiment, practicing thankfulness, kindness, and mercy, which I think that you and your students might really thoroughly enjoy. But right now, um, here on the program, we are we took the three-day peace challenge. So yesterday was Thankful Thursday, making today mm-hmm. Kindness Friday, which will make tomorrow Mercy Saturday, which aligns with your empathy conversation as well, by the way. The mercy part of her thing totally aligns with your empathy conversation. So you might totally dig her and what she's talking about. I am sure I will, and I will check that out. And I think that people who are committed to to Christ and want to be kind, we all need to unite and uh, rally our forces together. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, Dan DeWitt, as always, what a joy to be with you. Um, you guys, check it out, theolatte.com. Everything we talked about today is from the Weekend Worldview Reader, but there's more there as well, including a piece about The Chosen, which many of you are watching and enjoying, uh, Christian America's must-see TV show, and pretty much why secular America knows nothing about it. I found that piece at The Atlantic totally interesting, and I found it because Dan posted it uh, on this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. So thanks for that, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Okay. I um I love that people text in like everything. I love it. I love it. So keep texting. Totally appreciate it. Love the engagement. Um and I will try to um disappoint you less often, Lori. Okay, uh let me do this. Here at the at the end of this hour, remember we are in the midst of a three day peace challenge issued yesterday by one of our guests. So yesterday was Thankfulness Thursday. Did you give thanks to the Lord our God for just all kinds of stuff yesterday? Um, What made your Thankful Thursday list? Today uh, means that this is Kindness Friday. So what would it look like for you to extend kindness to someone else today? And then be thinking, be looking forward to tomorrow, Mercy Saturday. How could we show mercy to those around us? we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.